Thank you. You may be seated. And as you're on your way down, grab your Bible, turn to Matthew 16. And uh, if your sermon notes are nearby, I put a, a familiar C.S. Lewis quote on the back about his trilemma. Some of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis and his writings. And I thought that for our introduction this morning, as we set the stage for asking the ultimate question, that I would just read to you this quote from C.S. Lewis. In his famous book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis makes this statement. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either this was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Jesus could only have been one of four things, really. A legend, a liar, a lunatic, or Lord and God. There is so much historical and archaeological evidence to support his existence that every reputable historian agrees he was not just a legend. If Jesus were a liar, why would he die for his claim when he could easily have avoided such a cruel death with a few choice words? And if he were a lunatic, how then did he engage in intelligent debates with his opponents or handle the stress of his betrayal and crucifixion while continuing to show a deep love for his antagonists? Christ said he was Lord and God. The evidence supports that claim. In Matthew chapter 16, our Lord, in, in that uh, way that only he could do, sets the stage to ask his disciples the ultimate question. It's the question that he would ask us today as well. Who do you say that I am? Let's read our text. It's Matthew chapter 16, beginning with verse 13. We'll read through verse 20, although we'll only be able to get through the first part of the passage today. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Isn't that interesting? Now, the last half of that passage is, is a text that is not without its controversy, and it's very interesting. We're not going to get to that part today. In fact, you'll need to come two weeks from today, um, unless Jim Shupey wants to deal with it next week, and I would be grateful if he did. But, um, I mean, is Peter the Pope? Did Christ look at Peter right here and establish the church on Peter? Is he some special super disciple? 
What does it mean to bind something on earth and then it's bound in heaven? Well, what, is, what does this mean? And how about the keys of the kingdom? What are they? And, and I don't know that, that the church is growing right now. It looks to me like the church is very weak and diminishing. Is it true that the church is going to be built and that Christ said he will build his church and even the gates of hell will not prevail against it? It looks to me like the gates of hell are prevailing right now. And then what about that strange phrase that he ends with? Charging his disciples not to say anything about him. I tell you, our Lord's teaching is interesting and fascinating and deep. We want to deal with the top part of this passage today, largely due to just the time that we have at hand. But I think that it's uh, very important for us to consider who is Jesus. Could it be that he's the Lord or was he a liar or a lunatic? Just the legend? Is it possible for him to have just been a good teacher, another good prophet? Let's see what the disciples have to learn today on this encounter with their Lord. Matthew 16, verse 13. And the first thing I want you to see in the passage is that they have come into the district of Caesarea Philippi. Point number one on our outline is that the context of the passage takes place with our Lord and the disciples seeking uninterrupted time. Uninterrupted time. Now you need to understand, and it'll be helpful for you to picture in your mind, that Jesus is now two and a half years into his three-year window of ministry. Now we sometimes think that his ministry was a long span of time. Three years goes by in a blink. He was 30 years old when he first performed the first public miracle and kind of went public with his ministry. That was at the wedding at Cana, and John's Gospel records that for us. Uh, the, the ministry has been full. He has called his disciples. And you'll recall that the passages that we've been in previous in Matthew's gospel here up to today have been just filled with ministry. He's been healing and, and he's been feeding and he's been moving and he's even tried to find some relief. And you get the sense sometimes like at the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, the repeated lessons that our Lord had to teach the disciples. The disciples were tired. The disciples were weary of this ultra-kinetic, drinking from a fire hose kind of ministry where it never ends. And the crowds would just find him. He even goes up into the Decapolis, the area of the Gentiles. The crowds find him there. And he just ministers from early in the morning till late at night. And sometimes we can understand and relate to the disciples in their lapse of faith and their lack of faith and the need for repeated lessons. When you're fatigued, nothing seems quite right. You just get kind of grouchy. Not very strong in your faith. When you're tired and weary. So as they enter this area of Caesarea Philippi, they're due north of the Sea of Galilee. Um, if you can kind of picture the geography of the Holy Land, that Jordan River makes that ribbon. you got the Sea of Galilee at the top, the Dead Sea at the bottom. You, if you're looking straight on at it, off to your left is the Mediterranean. Straight up north is Caesarea Philippi. A familiar name of a community up there would be Dan. Have you remember in your... Bible study, sometimes you hear the phrase from Dan to Beersheba. That was an Old Testament term that was describing from the north to the south, you know, from, from Minnesota to Florida, from Dan to Beersheba. Caesarea Philippi is far north, off to the east, and uh, would have been the Decapolis where he had been right before this. Then they moved up, and they were at Caesarea Philippi. I think that 
you'll recognize as you study the passages, the second bullet point is that uh, our Lord is spending now more time alone with his disciples. He's, he's wanting to drive home final lessons. There's only six months left and they will be turning and making their way to Jerusalem. And there he will go to the cross. And according to God's perfect sovereign timing, our Lord will surrender himself over to the Pharisees. They will nail him to the cross. They won't keep him there for sure. Three days later, he'll rise again, of course. Forty days later, he will ascend into heaven. And then according to his promise, uh, one greater than him, he said, the Holy Spirit will come, that comforter, that paraclete, that one that comes alongside. I didn't say parakeet, I said paraclete. Um, that's a, the, the Greek word for one who comes alongside. The Holy Spirit comes alongside us. He ministers And it would really only be after the Holy Spirit's ministry at Acts 2, following the ascension of our Lord, and that it all comes together in the disciples' minds. But the Lord is testing them. He's he's poking them. He's pushing them. He wants them to to be thinking about who He is and and what He's been teaching them. He, of course, has been modeling ministry 24-7. They've heard His Um, oral ministry. He's been teaching constantly. And once again today, as our Lord uh, does, He just turns real life into ministry and teaching time. Not only is He spending more time alone with the disciples, but uh, you need to see that He's going to be paying less attention to the crowds and the Pharisees and Sadducees. These last six months are going to be less engaged with them. He will engage with them. And in fact, we have some extensive teaching still coming in Matthew um, where he will confront the Pharisees and he will be head on with them for extensive teaching. It's the passage coming up, for example, where he calls them whited sepulchers, you know, painted tombs with dead bones on the inside and their hypocrisy. And he's going to be confronting the Pharisees, but he's trying to spend more time alone with the disciples. He's trying to pay less attention to the crowds and the Pharisees. And in fact, he's finding deliberate time to pray. He deliberately is trying to find time to pray. And this is a good time for us to turn to Luke chapter 9 for Luke's abbreviated account of this. We have the parallel account of of Peter's confession of Christ as Jesus asked the disciples who they think he is. Notice in Luke chapter 9 verse 18, um, we get a little bit of insight here. It says in verse 18 of Luke 9, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, okay, we didn't get that tidbit in Matthew, as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. The others say Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen, risen from the dead. Keep that in mind as uh, we go back to Matthew chapter 16. So we see here that Luke records for us that that our Lord has found time to pray. Now they've risen. They're making their way to Caesarea Philippi. Mark's account tells us that they haven't arrived yet, that they're en route and that they're actually walking while they have this conversation. Now when Jesus and the disciples, verse 13 again, came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he then asked him disciples this question. And the second thing we see is what I call an unexpected test. An unexpected test, kind of a pop quiz. You can kind of picture them walking along. There's some conversation. They're somewhat refreshed. They've been praying. Um, they've rested. And then our Lord says this question, asks this question of his disciples. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? 
Now, I don't think that this is just an arbitrary question. I also don't think that our Lord had a need to know what people were saying about him. I think he understood exactly what people thought about him and what they would say about him. By the way, the phrase son of man is the most common expression of our Lord's name for himself. It's an emphasis on his humanity. It's an Old Testament phrase. It's found in the book of Daniel, for example. Um, And it was totally understood by the listener here, by the reader of Matthew, by the audience of Christ, not so much by us in our Western mindset, but it would have been totally understood in the Jewish mind and those who had studied the Old Testament that the Son of Man was one and only the Messiah. It was a name for the Messiah. And so when our Lord references that to himself, his audience totally understood. Who do you say Messiah is? Or who do you say I am who is Messiah? What do you think I am? And uh, that is an expression that, it, that is used about 80 times in the New Testament describing our Lord Jesus. So you get this, I picture it, it doesn't say it in the text, but I kind of picture this, this um, out of nowhere question, like a pop quiz, an unexpected test. They're walking along and then the Lord just pipes up, uh, fellas, well, what are people saying? Who, who do they say I am? I assume we have a fairly complete answer. We have all the answer given to us that we need. I think it could have gone on for some conversational time here where they were uh, referencing who people say. I think our Lord did know exactly what people were saying. Um, But they enter in and give him a little grocery list. Okay, you want to know what people are saying? We'll tell you. And number three is the undecided talk of the day or the undetermined talk would be this is what people are saying. And the first one they say is, well, he must be... John the Baptist. That's who he is. I think he's John the Baptist. If you flip the page back to Matthew 14, verses 1 and 2, you get a clue as to kind of um, what perhaps was a common thought of the day. Herod the Tetrarch, he's the one who killed John the Baptist, had him imprisoned. Remember, John had confronted him about his public preaching against his adulterous marriage. He had stolen his brother's wife. And John the Baptist piped up about it, so they shut him down and put him in prison. They had killed him, but at the time, verse 1 of chapter 14 of Matthew, at the time of Herod the Tetrarch, he heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had killed John the Baptist... We can go back to Matthew 16. He had had him killed, and now he sees someone that that is reflective of the spirit of John the Baptist, and he goes, oh, he must have had a resurrection. It is possible that that was somewhat of a common thought of the day. Who is this guy that's, you know, healing the lame, making the blind to see, that, that is taking a little boy's lunch and feeding thousands of people with it? Oh, it's John the Baptist in a reincarnate form. Another thought was that it was Elijah. It was Elijah. Now that comes from an Old Testament prophet, Malachi. And in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, you don't have to turn there. But what's interesting is that he prophesies that in the last days, Elijah would come again. Now this fit the mindset of the Jewish mind of the day, even today. Um, Think about it. Um, For one thing, Elijah was a powerful prophet, right? And he was taken up into heaven in a flaming chariot, so he never really died, I guess. And, that, and then Malachi prophesied that in the last days he would come again, and they were looking for that to happen. And, 
And if you think about it, at every Passover celebration, what do they do at the table? There's one empty chair. Who's that for? At the Seder cell, who's that for? That's for Elijah. And what do they have one of the children get up from the table? We've done this right here in our, in our, in our own celebration in Easter as we've had, as Willem has led us in the Seder Supper. They'll have a child get up and go open the door and look out. Who are they looking for? Looking for Elijah. And so some were saying, this might be Elijah that's come. We're living in the end times. This is it. This is what God and the, and the prophets have prophesied. Now, we know that Jesus himself explained part of that in that John the Baptist himself was at least a partial fulfillment of the coming of Elijah. We think that in the very last days of the world, in the book of Revelation, that there's a place for him as well. But Elijah and John the Baptist were a lot alike. They were kind of duck commander, woolly old wilderness guys with rough clothing and eating locusts and honey. They both preached fire, hell, and brimstone. You know, Elijah and the prophets of Baal, and, um, and fire came down from heaven. John the Baptist preached that, you know, preached that fire would fall from heaven, that Messiah would come with his winnowing fork and win out the evil and the good and bring judgment and parentheses. John the Baptist was thinking, and I hope he does it really soon, and I hope you, you, and you are included. And it was just like strong preaching, you know, but it didn't happen. So it's Elijah. Then some thought maybe it was Jeremiah, one of the most revered of prophets. There's some apocryphal writing um, in the apocryphal books where there's stories about Jeremiah that when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire swooped down on Israel and stole their young people, destroyed the temple and so forth, that would have been Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's kind of time, uh, that Jeremiah the prophet would have, that he had gone into the temple and he had gathered up the items for worship and he had hidden them up in the mountains. And that at a future time when the temple would be rebuilt, that he would bring those back down, that he would be resurrected, I guess, and make that happen. So there was all kinds of talk. So it's a lot like today, isn't it? Who's Jesus? Oh, you know, well, he's, um, he's a really good teacher. Um, well, I don't know. I don't know. I think that, you know, maybe he existed. Maybe people have their opinions. And most of the time they make it up. They put it together. You know, you know there's, there's Muhammad, there's Mahatma Gandhi, there's Jesus. You know, he's just in, well, where, do you, you know, where do you get that stuff? Well, I think it. And so people thought this stuff. This is what I think. He's John the Baptist, he's Elijah, he's Jeremiah. And then it's interesting, they kind of have this catch-all. Well, he's just, or one of the prophets, Luke said, that rose again from the dead. A prophet who has risen again. There's just like an undetermined, undecided talk around the community of who he is. Well, I think that our Lord was asking a question to set the stage to ask a question. It was kind of like his introduction to where he really wanted to go. Okay, guys, what are people saying? Who am I? Who is the Son of Man? He lets them talk for a little while and then he wants to hear the unfiltered truth. The unfiltered truth. Look at verse 15. And he said to them, and here it is, the ultimate question, but who do you say that I am? In other words, I don't really care what everybody else says. What do you say? 
What do you say? In fact, today, as that question is asked, it doesn't really matter what anybody else says. It really matters what you say. How do you answer that question? Are you prepared to answer that question? Who do you say the Son of Man is? Well, Peter, bless his heart, kind of the self-appointed leader of the disciples. I picture Peter being probably physically one of the strongest of the disciples. We know he wasn't the fastest runner because John beats him to the tomb. He was older, John was younger, but I think he was a strong guy. He was outspoken, and, um, and he was, in fact, the de facto leader of the disciples, quick to speak, speaking his mind rapidly, processing his, his thinking out loud. Jesus says to them, verse 15, but who do you say I am? And, and Peter, with an unreserved trust, Uh, A statement of faith, unreserved trust. I hold nothing back. I'm going to tell you, he said. So he asks them, notice in verse 15, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Peter makes this statement of unreserved trust. You know, this isn't the first time that Peter's made this kind of statement. Let's flip back to John or over to John's account in John's gospel in chapter six of an account that he recorded for us. It is not the parallel account of this. But in John chapter six, which is that long and interesting chapter that is filled with the hard teachings of Christ, they called it. Um, For example, in John six, Okay, the chapter starts out where Jesus is feeding the 5,000. He walks on water. Then he enters into a time of discourse and teaching. He's the bread of life. In teaching on himself being the bread of life, notice that he says some things that are difficult to understand. Verse 52, for example, And the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. It's bizarre. It's hard to understand. Some construe this uh, at the communion table and believe and teach strongly that uh, a doctrine of transubstantiation, they call it. When they take communion, they believe that the communion elements of juice or wine or bread literally, I'm saying literally like under a microscope, turn into cells of blood and flesh of the Lord Jesus and that you literally are eating the flesh and blood of our Lord Jesus. I don't really get that. It doesn't make sense to me. Now, our Lord is teaching spiritual truth here. It is hard to understand. In fact, it's so hard to understand that look at verse 60. It says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said, do you take offense at this? So forth and so on. And then look at verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. I mean, the teaching was so hard. And Jesus was teaching these things and they were confused and they decided, I had enough of this. I'm walking away. It's it. Many disciples, verse 66 said, turned away. So Jesus then turns to the 12 and here it is. Do you want to go away as well? You guys ready to leave me as well? Simon Peter, there he is. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. 
Back to Matthew 16. You know, you would think that this, that either John 6 or Matthew 16 would be the defining moment of the spiritual maturation of Peter. Guys, who do you think I am? Peter said, I got it. You are the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the Son of God. Who else could we go to? You have the words of eternal life. Defining moment of Peter's spiritual maturation? I say they, they're trying to believe it. They're trying to understand it. Ultimately, isn't Peter the one following the, the scattering after the crucifixion when they just don't get it? I mean, still to come is there... They are so committed to the vision of a literal earthly kingdom that they argue about who can sit at his right and who can sit at his left. Then he's going to go get crucified on a cross. Beyond their mind that Messiah could be crucified. So they still don't have it all put together. They believe at this moment that he's the Christ. Peter's the one who's going to say what? He's going to deny his Lord for one thing, but he's going to say, I've had it. I'm going fishing. Forget this, man. I just do not understand what's happening. I'm going fishing. When was Peter's defining moment? Uh, When our Lord is standing on the beach, right? Peter, feed my sheep. Peter, it's I. And he sees the resurrected Lord. When you read Peter's preaching in Acts and when you read his epistles, what a wonderful follower of Christ. Totally committed. Totally understanding who Jesus is. Well, here he's the mouthpiece. Jesus wants the unfiltered truth. And Peter makes this statement of unreserved trust. I think one of the applications for us is to ask that same question to us. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? Notice verse 16, what it says. Jesus compliments Peter and he says, when Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, verse 17, Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, uses his family name, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. You know, it's a little bit of a warning about trying to use C.S. Lewis to become convinced for sure who Jesus is. And you're not going to logic your way there completely. Following Christ is a step of faith. Jesus is expecting God to do a spiritual work in his mind, opening his eyes to truth. We say around here a lot in our leadership level, we say we preach Christ and God opens blind eyes. We preach Christ, God opens blind eyes. You can't make somebody believe. You can't logic somebody into the kingdom. But we are expected to read the word of God, be convicted of our sin, go to the cross, confess that sin, accept Christ. And it is amazing the work that God does in our spiritual heart and mind, opening us to the truths of Christ. So who do you say Jesus is today? I'm talking about you. Who do you say he is? Now, if you reject him as the Christ, it could very well be, and let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it could very well be that you are indeed still in a natural state of sinfulness. All right? This is what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Look there quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The Apostle Paul says something that is very similar to what the Lord said to Simon Peter in verse 17. That flesh and blood has not revealed this, but my Father who is in heaven reveals this. It's this mystical, mysterious aspect of the Spirit of God opening our eyes to truth. 
There is an interesting concept that the Apostle Paul presents in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, where he says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly or foolishness to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned or blind. So you've been in these conversations, haven't you? Like, what do you believe? Uh, I used to have these conversations in the dairy barn with um, pot-smoking hippies that worked on the farm with me. Good, good boys, but man, they were far from Christ. But they loved to ask me questions. So, well, Marceau, tell me what you believe. And so you talk. You start talking about Christ. You start talking about the Word. You start talking about things. And their eyes glaze over. They're like, man, I just don't get it. No, you don't get it because you're a natural man. You do not accept these things. And in fact, they even go so far. That sounds crazy to me. Yeah, it's folly or foolishness to those who are outside of Christ because you don't get it. Is it foolishness to you today? Are you a natural man? You need to ask God to remove the blindness of your eyes and soften your heart and show you Christ today. It's interesting that Paul uses this phrase repeatedly in these early chapters of 1 Corinthians. He says, For the things of the Spirit of God are folly or foolishness to the natural man who does not accept them. That's the same word that he uses back in chapter 1 of verse 18 of 1 Corinthians. 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly. The ESV translates it folly or foolishness. To those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That's why you can share your testimony with somebody. You can share Christ with somebody. You can talk about the Word of God with somebody. And it's really meaningful to you. And you know it's changed your life. And, and you have totally been transformed by it. And you understand. You know what it is to used to be in your sin. You've been to the cross. You're born again. And it's real to you. And you understand it. And they think, you're nuts. Because that word folly in the Greek come, we've said this often here, but that word folly in the Greek or foolishness is from a word that's been translated into English, moronic. You're a moron. That's the Greek word, foolishness, moronic. For the preaching of the cross or the word of the cross or the gospel of Jesus Christ is moronic to those who are perishing. They don't get it. It could be someone in here this morning, you think... This dude's crazy. What time is it? Is Applebee's going to be open before he's done? You don't get it. You know, we're supposed to be witnessing the acts of Christ in Matthew. We're to be convinced of this wonderful Lord Jesus who can speak and he can put the arm on the end of a person who's never had an arm. And he can smear mud on eyes and make them see. And he can call forth his buddy Lazarus from the grave. These are all given to us to believe. Who do you say Jesus is? Maybe your problem is you haven't been to the cross yet. and You need to take a step of faith and ask God to show you. I want you to turn to Romans 10 and with this we're done. Romans chapter 10. And I want you to see secondly in conclusion that confession is part of the essential formula of salvation. Confession of Christ is essential for salvation. These are familiar verses to many of us. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. 
Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Do you see how confession is essential to salvation? Looking at Christ, and he asks you, who do you say I am? And you say, you are the Christ. And if you believe that, then everything else has to be different. Because if he's who he says he is, then everything else in your world changes because he is the Messiah. And sin is real and the cross is real and following Christ is real. Confession of Christ is essential for salvation. Have you confessed that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead? And are you saved today? Who do you say Christ is? Finally, looking down at ten seventeen of Romans, you will never be convinced by logic alone. I think that the writings of guys like C.S. Lewis is very helpful. And I think he's right. I think that Jesus is either Lord, liar, or lunatic. And he th- throw in legend there. <laughs> How could you be a good teacher if you're full of deception? Because if Jesus wasn't who he said he was, he deceived people. So that's not good. And, and on and on the logic goes. But listen, you will ultimately never be able to logic someone into into salvation. You will never logic someone into the kingdom of God. It takes the word of God. It's the record. It's why John wrote these things. We said it last week, John 20, 31. John wrote these things. He said, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you might be saved and have everlasting life. John wrote these things as an eyewitness so that you would believe. Look what Paul said in Romans 10, 17. So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of God. And you you wish you could come up with some logical formula that some guy at work or somebody next to you at a desk next to you, you step through these logical formulas. Listen, he's either Lord, liar, or lunatic. And then your conclusion is, no, he's Lord. Good. It just doesn't work that way. It's the Word of God that brings the sight to blind eyes. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. That's why it's important for us to use the Scripture in evangelizing. It's why it's important for you if you're a skeptic today. If you're still a natural man and you don't believe that Jesus is the Christ and you don't agree with Peter and you do think the preaching of the Gospel is moronic, you need to keep studying the Word. I've reminded us of this passage a lot lately. But it's just so strong in my mind of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. When he's in hell, the rich man is in hell and he's begging Father Abraham to please send somebody back from Hades to his five brothers back home. Because if you would send them there from somebody from hell and tell them they don't want to come to this place... They'll believe you. It's like my buddy in high school that used to look at me and I would try to witness to him and say, Ward, why don't you accept Christ as your Savior? And he would always jiggle his head sideways. He's a big, strong guy. And when he was going to say something that he shouldn't say, he would jiggle his head sideways like this. And he would say, Marceau. And then he would cuss a little bit. And he would say, Marceau, blankety blanket. I'm going to hell because all my friends are going to hell and we're going to party in hell. And I'm telling you, nothing could be further from the truth. And the rich man wanted somebody to go talk to his five brothers. And what does Father Abraham say? It is just astounding to me. I I just want to grab a hold of that and want you to understand it. That even if somebody rises from the dead and goes to my house and tells my five brothers, don't come to hell, they still won't believe. 
And the reason they won't believe is because they have Moses and the prophets and they don't believe them. And if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe a dead man rising from the grave. And indeed, that is true because Jesus rose from the dead and they don't believe in him. You see, I know I keep repeating that the last several weeks. But listen, it's it's where the word of God is what brings life to the dead soul. And blind eyes and the scales fall off as you read the Word of God and as you listen and learn the account of what Jesus did and who He is. So you better figure out who Jesus is. How would you answer that question today? But let me give you a little warning. Don't take too long. You don't know what tomorrow brings. And your eternal destiny is at stake. The great evangelist Dwight L. Moody, D.L. Moody, made a huge mistake On October 8th, 1871, he preached to his largest audience in the city of Chicago. The text had been, what will you do then with Jesus who is called the Christ? And he said something he had never said before and frankly never said again. You see, he was very fatigued and because of that, he said to the audience after he had presented the gospel, now I give you a a week to think that over. And when we come together again, you will have opportunity to respond. And then Ira Sankey came and began to sing. That was his song leader. And even before he finished his song, as Ira Sankey sang, you could hear the blare of the siren in the streets of Chicago as the great fire broke out and left 100,000 homeless. Hundreds of people died in that fire. And Dwight L. Moody rose to the occasion a few months later and he said, I would give my right arm before I would ever give an audience another week to think over the message of the gospel. Some who heard that night died in the fire. You don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? It's the most important question you'll ever answer. Let's stand together and pray, please. You know, the interesting thing about that question is that only you can answer it. I would encourage you to seek the truth in the Scriptures. I would encourage you in the quietness of the moment right now with your head bowed to admit your sinfulness before a holy God and accept the finished work of Christ at the cross for your salvation. If you're struggling to find the faith to do that, ask God to give it to you and get in the Word. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. But today, my friend, is the day of salvation. Don't, put, don't delay. Don't delay. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for Peter's abrupt frankness and the way he answered that question. Lord, we want to have faith, strengthen our faith. Continue to show us who Jesus is. I thank you for our wonderful Lord Jesus and all of his marvelous works that are recorded that John reminded us that if they were all recorded, the things that Jesus did, not even the world could hold all those books. What a wonderful Lord Jesus we have. Father, would you open blind eyes to that today? Strengthen our faith. Help us with this ultimate question. We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.